Hey, I'm Jim Martin. I always hesitate to ask this. I usually make a quick mention at the end of the show, but anyway, well, here it is. We rely on listener support to help fund the production of Adventure Rider Radio. We always hope that if we produced a quality product that adds some value to your life, then you would support us. But in reality, less than half a percent of listeners support, and only about half of those support monthly. We're very grateful for that support. If you aren't doing it already, drop by our website and click on the support button, adventureriderradio.com. Mexico, 50 miles to go and three riders down. What could have been a simple detour, maybe should have been, turned into a challenging ride that took out three of the 19 riders in this group. What happened, how the team and their guides pulled it together, coming up. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We've got a good one for you. Before we get going, I want to thank some sponsors that helped bring this episode to you today. One is Best Rest. Best Rest makes the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcycles. It's made in the U.S. and has a lifetime warranty. It's also the distributor for Google Tech filters in North America. The website, www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. And Max BMW Motorcycles that's been outfitting adventure riders like you and I since 2002. They've got loads of parts and accessories online ready to ship to your door. They've got an e-rider newsletter that's free to sign up for and highly recommend it. The website, maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. Sam We're proud to be associated with Green Chili Adventure Gear because they make American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their strapping system. They've got a load of stuff you've got to see. You want tough stuff? They've got it. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. And if you want a chain oiler that just works with no electrical or vacuum connections, the MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure. There's no nozzles that delivers the oil to a felt pad on the swing arm that gets to your chain. You can get more miles from your chain and sprocket, and you don't have to worry about spraying oil on. www.motobreeze.com. There's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. It was uh, 80 kilometres, 50 miles long, all dirt. Typically, we should have knocked that over in about, say, four, four and a half hours. It took us nine hours. It doubled the time. While all this was happening, another rider went down. Literally within five to six kilometres and within about 20 minutes, we had our three casualties. My name is Bill Kanachi. I'm from Sydney, Australia, and at the moment I'm presently retired. Now, Bill, how long have you been riding motorcycles? Uh, I've been riding since 1968, so uh, this is my 51st year. 68. Wow, that is a yes. long time. That is just a few yes. years after I was born. <laughs> what, were, what were you riding in 1968? My father came home one day with a, a motor scooter from Japan called a rabbit, rabbit scooter. 
the idea was that we were going to strip this down and turn it into a three-wheel go-kart, use the back half of the motor scooter and put some front wheels on it, turn it into a go-kart. But we had so much fun on that scooter, we ended up riding that around for a couple of years. Uh, I got the bug and, and the next bike after that was a, a Honda CL90. I think they called it the Honda Scrambler 90. Uh, and then it progressed from then on, and I just did a recent count, and I'm up to 25 motorcycles. I've had 25 motorcycles. I have three at the moment. Wow, that's a lot of bikes. Um, it's funny because a lot of the people I talk to from Australia have grown up on a farm learning to ride a motorcycle, but clearly everybody doesn't grow up on a farm in Australia. No, absolutely not. I was uh, very much a suburban boy. Um, got to ride the bikes on the weekend. Uh, luckily, back in the 60s, there were still a lot of... Uh, residential plots which weren't built on so my father used to pack up a, a mate of mine called john uh we used to throw the bikes in the back of a box trailer and he'd uh, transport us out to one of these uh, vacant lots with a 20 litre gallon 20 litre jerry can of fuel and then uh, drop us off at about eight o'clock in the morning and pick us up at four o'clock in the afternoon no cell phones no communication so we really had to look after ourselves in those days Did, was that considered risky at that point I don't think so, Jim. I, I look back on it now and, and think to myself with all the communications and the safety nets we have, it possibly could be perceived as risky in today's time. But uh, back in the 60s, no. Uh, it, it, I don't think we even had a second thought about that. It's curious how our attitudes change because, I mean, nowadays if you drive a vehicle, most people will wear a seatbelt just because it's there. You know it's it, it improves your safety, same as when you ride a motorcycle, you wear a helmet and you wear a jacket and, and gloves and boots, and we do these things because we know it. But back in the day, there were, there was no concern. You guys were fine. Absolutely. Uh, I think there was a lot more self-responsibility. Uh, like we, John and I knew if we hurt ourselves, we'd be there for a few hours with that. Uh, so we tended to ride subconsciously within a certain limit so we didn't end up damaging the bikes or ourselves. Uh, and I think that stuck with me th right throughout my life. I do notice when I'm riding by myself, there's a change of dynamic. I am a lot, lot more careful when I'm by myself versus riding with a group. Yeah, that's what I do as well. If you're riding with someone else, you have that, that cushion. That goes for everything, actually, whether you're out for a hike or, or no matter what you're doing. It's just um, you have that added leeway there with another person, and I'll tend to do things that I wouldn't do uh, at all. Like, you know, if you're climbing a ridge or something like that, I, I just wouldn't do it by myself, but I won't. It's no problem to do with somebody else there. Exactly. Uh, you know, the, the, the risk is still there, but the, you've got a safety net with at least one other person. Uh, and I think that goes very much with motorcycling because I don't think we realise how potentially dangerous the, that this pastime of ours is. Did you end up taking training when you were younger or get into any sort of professional riding? Uh, yes. So uh, it certainly bit the bug bit very hard with me. Um, I, you know, I, I had to do my high school work, um, but as soon as I finished that, I joined a, a local motorcycle club and I started racing motocross and then into endurance trials. Uh, the movie on any Sunday really hit, hit me hard. I, I always wanted to be like Malcolm Smith. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so did a lot of that. Um, got my, my road license on my birthday. Uh, in Australia, we could get our learner permit at 16 and nine months. I did that on the day. And then I, on my birthday, I was getting my license. So I was road riding as well as doing uh, competition dirt uh, riding for a number of years. But I realized how dangerous uh, riding on the road was. So I got my license in 1973. But it, was, it wasn't until 1980 in Australia that uh, advanced riding courses started to proliferate and one of the first ones was a uh, group called stay upright 
So as soon as they started doing that sort of thing, I realized that I needed to gain other knowledge and other experience uh, and went along and did a course with them. And I think that put me in very good stead and and probably put me in a situation where I, I didn't get myself into trouble uh, where I could have uh, over the years. So that sort of thing was good. Even now, I'm 62 now. Uh, in the, I just look back. In the last five years, I have done four different advanced writing courses because I still find that uh, I'm still picking up knowledge from different people. Mm, and are they on-road or off-road or a combination? Uh, combination. Uh, the last two years has been off-road, uh, very much adventure bike training. Uh, I did one with Ducati in Italy last year. And then uh, earlier this year when I was in America, I did uh, a raw kite course called in, in, Intro to ADV. Is, is that your bird in the background? It's it's a it's a magpie outside. I noticed that you had the same problem with Shirley <laughs> and Brian. And Shirley. <laughs> These magpies, they're really vocal. They are very vocal. <laughs> In fact, I, I don't even notice I'm hearing it, but it's, it's all the time and it is a beautiful bird. Now, do you know this magpie is, is actually asking you no. for something? No, no, no. It's just parked up in a, in a on the roof of a house next door. So that's how loud it is. Is it the black bird with the, the white tail, long, long tail? Yes. Yeah, so the same magpies what we have here in, in different parts oh, here right. of this country. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's such, I just have never heard them call before, other than with Brian and Shirley. Of course, you've heard on Raw. That's when you hear them yes. call. But yes. But in any case, uh, so I was going to say, what, what is it you look for when you're looking for some rider training? Uh, very much the one-to-one uh, interaction I have with a coach, because uh, in a lot of cases. Uh, my, I might have picked up a bad habit or something. And I did notice uh, with the rider training I've done in Australia on the road, uh, plus the Ducati uh, training in Italy and to the, to the best extent with Rawhide uh, this last uh, February, uh, the one-to-one training was fantastic because they could pick up little nuances, which I was doing wrong. Uh, the adventure bike riding is so totally different from what I class as standard dirt bike riding. We are now tossing around a bike which uh, is weighing anywhere from 220 to 260 kilos, so a quarter of a ton. So uh, to be able to improve the technique and the slow riding ability, I found was really fantastic. You're doing a lot more counterweighting with the adventure bike than you are with the dirt bike. Very, very much more. Uh, you know, with a dirt bike which weighs around 100 kilos, 95 to 100 kilos, you're throwing that around. You know, that's that's about the same as my body weight. Uh, I'm a little bit lighter than that. But when you've got a bike which is twice or two and a half times your body weight, counterweighting really comes into its own. Uh, listening to your program uh, with all the rider hints that you're coming up with, people like Clinton and Brett, that's really helped a lot. But the one-to-one that I picked up with Rawhide just recently was fantastic. It, it was a quantum leap on adventure bike riding for me. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people chuckle about it saying, you know, they make adventure bikes that can go anywhere. They make them big and huge and heavy. And then people have to take lessons to figure out how to ride these big, heavy things because you want to get them into the same places that you, you took the dirt bikes into with far less training, or at least some would say that. Well, I totally agree. Uh, and it wasn't until I started riding uh, the F800 I have presently that I realized that it isn't uh, a little 125 or a 250cc two-stroke uh, that you can easily toss around. And, and if you get into something which is fairly difficult and you drop it a couple of times, it's pretty easy to pick up. When you drop one of these big adventure bikes, and you and I have talked about this, uh, it's a heft. 
So to learn to pick it up correctly, to learn to counterweight, to learn to do these sorts of things, and most of the, the times I've dropped the bike is very much at slow speeds, uh, to learn to do this correctly has really improved my riding and it cuts down my energy consumption. It improves my pleasure of riding the bike. I can ride it longer. So uh, all good. I, I'm, I, I guess I'm you're speaking to the converted when you talk to me about uh, motorcycle training. Well, and the, and the thing is with it, I mean, the, the adventure bike over the dirt bike is that there's a certain thrill to riding this thing that's kind of too big and heavy for what you're doing. It takes, uh, I, I hate to say more skill, because I'm sure there's all kinds of dirt bike riders and, and, and probably the, you know far better riders than me that would argue that that's not the, not the case. But it seems to me that it's much more difficult to to wrestle this heavy beast around and it takes some added skill to it. And I think there's, that's part of the thrill of the adventure bike, at least in, in tight situations. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's a totally different discipline, a totally different dynamic. One of the, the big pleasures I'm getting out of adventure bike riding is the fact that with the dirt bike, you usually end up having to trailer it somewhere. It, it's not a good road bike. It will sit comfortably maybe at 80 kilometers an hour. It's usually got a small tank. It's not designed for any long distance. The joy with the adventure bikes we're getting today is that we can do 100, 200, 300 kilometers an hour, kilometers uh, on the road and see a, a nice little dirt road off to the side and go, hey, I'm going to go and investigate and explore that and, and take these bikes down there. And they are so capable. But you need to be able to know what you're doing to be able to handle them when it starts to get into a tight situation, that's for sure. Now, the, the recent one you just mentioned, you went to Rawhide. What was that all about? Uh, it was. It's really been a situation in the back of my mind for many, many years to be able to come over and ride in uh, America uh, and actually get down into Baja, Mexico as well. I was actually planning to do this last year, but a friend of mine convinced me to uh, join up with him and, and spend three months riding throughout Britain and Europe, which was absolutely brilliant. But uh, I wanted to come back and then do America, and I was actually planning to do that next year. But raw, I, I'm on the email list for Rawhide, and they had mentioned that they were doing a big bike in Baja tour uh, in starting late February. And it actually tied in very nicely with uh, a, a big exposition they were putting together in the Mojave Desert called Adventure Days. So when I contacted them and, and looked into both this Adventure Days and their Baja tour, it also turned out that they were doing uh, an intro to ADV instruction course for three days. So all of this dovetailed together very nicely for me. So I was able to come over, spend a few days acclimating in LA, head up to the Mojave Desert, do the training, be involved with the adventure days, and then literally go across to their ranch in Castaic, just north of LA, and start the, the trip down into Baja, which turned out to be absolutely brilliant. So with the intro to ADV, what sort of things are you learning? Very much like what you and I have talked about is how to handle these big bikes, these big adventure bikes uh, in an off-road situation. A lot of it was uh, counterbalancing, uh, braking on dirt at different speeds, uh, body position, setting the bike up ergonomically correctly, which is amazing how that will change your fatigue level. Uh, simple things as, as setting the levers up such that you, you're not twisting your hands uh, in an unusual position for, for many hours. Uh, your your foot peg, your seat, your hand relationship, uh, the, what I call the, the trilogy of comfort on the motorcycle. Um, 
And basically, yeah, that was about it. Uh, it was one of the interesting things. Also, the Rawhide's very much a BMW-sponsored uh, uh, company. So they had a lot of 1200s plus uh, the brand new 850s, and I got to ride both bikes. And uh, I have an 800 now. Uh, I was thinking of buying an 850, but I think I'll now buy a 1200 because I've now figured out how good those bikes <laughs> this, are. <laughs> this is funny. I chuckled because you told me the story when we had coffee. But, but you got converted because you actually, when you set this trip up, this big bike and Baja trip, and I guess you're, you're training too, you told them you wanted an 800. You insisted. Correct. I, I, I have an 800 out here and I thought, well, this is going to be the bike I want to ride if I'm going to be riding in some technical situations. So yes, they, they were trying to convince me to get a 1200. And I said, no, no, I, I want an 800. So they very kindly uh, offered me a brand new uh, F850, uh, the literally the 2019 model. Uh, and I was the only one riding one. Everyone else had 1200s. And then they got you to get on one. Ah, oh, yes, Jim. Uh, I now realize how, why the 1200, all these decades, has been such a fantastic bike. Uh, one of the big things was uh, in our training, in the intro to ADV, we actually learned to pick up the motorcycles. So one of the first things we did was lay the motorcycles on its side and pick them up. Now, with a, a conventional motorcycle, uh, such as the F800, the F850, and just about every other adventure bike, when they go down, they lie totally flat. So when you pick a bike up, you're picking it up from absolutely ground level. When the uh, GS motorcycle goes over, uh, any of those boxer twin uh, BMWs go over, they never lie flat. They only lie on one of their cylinders. So they go over to probably about a 45-degree angle. So when you're picking them up, they're already halfway up. Uh, and also with the weight so low down, it's, it feels, even though it's a heavier bike, it feels so much lighter to pick that bike up. Uh, I, I thought I was doing the right thing by getting the 850, but it turned out I should have got a 1200 or the 1250. Well, kind of like a Harley with the, the floorboards on it, right? It tilts over, it hits the floorboards. But you were mentioning also the lower center gravity. You said riding it and the dirt was a big difference. And, and by the way, this is not a sales pitch for BMW because I am not a brand person at all. Well, nor am I. Uh, I. I have three motorcycles parked in the garage right at the moment, all three are different brands. But uh, I, I, I was very skeptical about the GSs. I have to say that uh, when I first uh, started getting into adventure riding, everyone's saying, you know, you, you know, do a Charlie and Ewan uh, long way round, uh, get yourself a 1200 GS. And, and I just thought they were land tanks. I thought they were just too large. Uh, but and now I've spent some hours riding them. Uh, I can't believe how well they handle uh, in, a, in a dynamic riding situation. That lower center of gravity, the telelever uh, front forks, the paralever at the back, uh, it handles uh, technical situations like deep sand, mud, very, very easily. Uh, and the big thing here, when you're riding these adventure bikes, is there's a fatigue factor. Uh, when we're doing the, the Baja run, there was uh, day two, we did 50 miles of pretty hard technical uh, riding, such that uh, three people were actually injured. Uh, in that time, uh, riding the 1200 was so much easier than riding the uh, 800. It is so much easier on the sand because of the lower central gravity. And I do think that the different style of suspension helps in that as well. Well, I'm not convinced yet because <laughs> I haven't ridden one and I don't want to because not only are they way out of my price range, but um, I'm still on the thing of they're too big, but I'm not going to go there. I, I want to know, know about the trip. The, the, so the big bike and Baja trip, what, is the, what was the overall plan with this? 
it was a uh, five to six day trip, starting uh, at just north of LA at the the bar, at the Rawhide Ranch at Castaic, and going all the way down to San Ignacio, which is about halfway down the Baja Peninsula. Uh, that southern point was going to be a two. We were spending two days there, and part of the two days was actually to do some whale watching, which was spectacular. Uh, the trip involved. Uh, some dirt, not not a lot of dirt. I'd say probably thirty percent dirt and seventy percent uh, asphalt, uh, and and riding throughout Baja Mexico, which was tr- simply stunning, really stunning. Now, what do you have for support vehicle, and how many people are going? Right, they they actually uh, maxed out the numbers. I think that that even surprised them. Uh, we started off with nineteen riders, uh, nineteen paid riders. They, we had a, a a lead rider, rawhide lead rider. His name was Chris. We also had a, a sweep uh, that was John, and we had two support vehicles. Uh, one was a, a van uh, carrying all our luggage and food and water and and, and first aid and all the, the the kit. The second one was a four wheel drive truck four-wheel drive pickup, uh, and it actually carried a spare motorcycle just in case one of the bikes did break down. Uh, what was pretty neat was leading up to this, uh, Rawhides, I, I, I couldn't get over how professional they were. They were absolutely brilliant. Uh, the communication uh, both by phone and by email for me in Australia was fantastic. Right to the point uh, about a week before I uh, went to America, uh, there was a phone conference with everyone involved on the ride and Jim Hyde himself got on there and explained what was happening and also explained the fact that we were going to be riding in a third world country, okay, on the border of America, a first world country, but he also explained the pitfalls, the road conditions, uh, the types of terrain, the technicality that we'd be involved in and the issues with lack of medical facilities, lack of communication. So we kind of laid it on the line that we were going to be in an area where we had to be fairly careful with our riding because if things went wrong, it could go wrong in a pretty bad way. So you say 19 riders. Is it Was it 21 with everybody or is that 19 including the rawhide riders? Uh, 21 uh, motorcycles uh, and two support and two vehicles. Support vehicles. 21 bikes. That, that's a big group of people uh, to move in, in any situation. All of you riding R1200s? Uh, all bar two people. Uh, I had the F850, and there was a there was three couples, husband and wife couples, and one of the wives had an F600. Oh, I see. You, you stuck with the F850, or, or you couldn't change that at that point. I, I couldn't change it at that point. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> so, so the trip is you're, you're saying four days. You're um, two days travel. Well, it, it was actually uh, five days. Uh, look, it was uh, sorry, seven days. Seven days. Seven okay. days trip. That yeah, makes more sense. So yes. seven days, and um, but things don't. I always love it when a story starts out with we started with nineteen riders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know this is going somewhere. So um, th- does it, does the trip pull out and, and start off just like it should? Absolutely. So day one was traveling from Los Angeles, uh, crossing the border at Tecate, and we ended up at a uh, an ex. Uh, bullfighter uh, training uh, place called um, Hacienda Santa Veronica uh, and a stunning hacienda just south of Tecate, probably about uh, 80 to 100 kilometres just south of Tecate. So that was, our first day was virtually all asphalt except for probably about 20 or 30 kilometres leading into this hacienda. Uh, beautiful accommodation, stunning food. Uh, the next day, 
was to was planned to leave Hacienda Santa Veronica and go to another location, a fairly popular location called Mike's Sky Ranch. Uh, it turns out that uh, you guys have had a fairly long winter and there was a fair bit of snow and rain uh, leading up to this trip. In fact, there was still a lot of snow in Mexico, which I didn't even believe that that would be the case, but uh, it certainly was, such that we couldn't get to Mike's Sky Ranch. Uh, it was literally snowed in. So they changed the route for this day two uh, along a dirt trail called the Compadre Trail. Now, it was uh, 80 kilometres, 50 miles long, uh, all dirt, and typically we should have knocked that over in about, say, four four and a half hours. It took us nine hours. It doubled the time because of all the rain and the snow still on the ground. Uh, we ran into some fairly technical riding to the point that uh, we ended up with. Well, well hang on, hang on. Be- before you, before you get into that, let, let me just back up here. So when they, when there's a, the plan, the, the change of plans here, you're supposed to go to Mike Sky Ranch and what do they do? Bring you together in the morning and say, Hey, look, we're not going to make it. Or did you guys actually try and ride there and find the snow? No, no. Uh, they they were in uh, communication all the time back to base, uh, back to LA, uh, and they had found out uh, through their, their headquarters that Mike Sky Ranch was snowed in. You're not going to make it. Uh, okay. So we are not going to make it. So they actually was mentioning that every night we would have a bit of a rundown as to what we were going to be doing and then another final briefing in the morning. Uh, and we were told that night that, look, we're not, we're not going to get into Mike's car. We're going to Plan B. Plan B will actually take us into a, a small uh, seaside resort called San Felipe. Uh, and we've got this fairly easy road <laughs> out, out to sea. Well, well, you said it was called Compadre's Trail. Was that what you said? Yes. Yeah, that, that alone, just the, the, the when you say trail in something, it has a certain you know connotation to it, right? Yes. Uh, but, you know, we, here we've got two support vehicles and, and they say, oh, the, the trucks are going to be able to come along to do that. So it's it's not like it's going to be a single track trail. It's going to be a trail that you can actually drive a motor vehicle along. So you're not expecting it to be too technical. But the issue was there was there had been a lot of water. There was a lot of standing water, uh, huge uh, mud holes, sections of uh, mud and and swamp area, which would run hundreds and hundreds of meters. Uh, And if it wasn't for that, it was uh, fairly deep sand. So uh, it it turned out to be a really exciting time. How does it start off and then describe the first obstacle you come to? it started off on uh, leaving uh, Hacienda Santa Veronica. Uh, the road was a beautiful dirt road, a road we were typically cruising along very, very comfortably at, at uh, 50 to 60 kilometres an hour, uh, very, very easy. And then as we got further along this road, it it's it certainly deteriorated. Uh, we started to climb up into the mountain range, which runs the length of Baja. And in fact, we got as high as 4,200 feet and still a lot of snow around. And as we did that, we started to run into, again, uh, swampy conditions, uh, mud holes, um, some fairly technical uh, up and down hills, uh, lots of creeks and rivers, which would have been dry in normal situations. So, as we got there, I think it was around about the uh, about the thirty kilometre mark in on this eighty kilometre or fifty mile trail. Uh, around about the twenty five to thirty kilometre mark, we, we ran into some very heavy sand, and uh, one of the lead riders went down. A fellow called Jim. Uh, he went down, and he, at that stage, he thought he had just 
hurt his shoulder, still able to ride. So he, he hopped back on his 1200 and, and continued riding. And then we hit these mud holes, uh, very deep. They would have been at least knee deep at, in some of the holes. And uh, the husband and wife uh, on different bikes uh, rode into one and uh, the F600 skewed off to the right, uh, went down and actually trapped uh, this young woman under the bike. And she, she was half submerged in this bike uh, and with a leg trapped underneath. And we were all rushed over there and, and pulled the bike off her and, and uh, got her up onto the side there. Uh, and while all this was happening, another rider went down. So literally within five to six kilometers and within about 20 minutes we had our three casualties so it, yes <laughs> you know you're saying about being trapped underneath the bike and and of course you know somebody might think that oh well maybe a small rider could be trapped under the bike i've been trapped under my bike before and i've managed to get out but it's it's very easy for anyone to go down and get trapped under and when you're talking about water and mud that makes the situation all that much worse it certainly does. Uh, cold water and cold mud with snow around there. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it, it's one of those things you think, oh, trapped under the bike, I can get that up. I've, like you, I've done exactly the same thing. But it's, it's a very awkward situation. And when you're in uh, a mud hole, which is probably uh, knee deep, at least knee deep, and you're half submerged in there, it's very difficult to get that motorcycle off you. So, wow. uh, uh, you know, we, we were over there in seconds. We were able to pull the bike off uh, this young lady and then uh, get her up onto the side. And, and was she hurt? Uh, initially, you know, the the, the um, adrenaline kicks in. Uh, she says she's feeling fine. And about a couple of minutes later, she says, oh, my leg doesn't feel well. Uh, and we it, it progressively got worse for her. Um, the pain. So we figured that she'd done some form of damage. We didn't know what. Uh, she couldn't stand on it. She couldn't put any weight on it. So at that stage, we were looking at uh, an alternate plan for her, which was to get her bike up into the back of the pickup and get her into uh, one of the trucks. So now that's two bikes in the pickup truck, the one spare bike plus her bike. Correct. And then uh, we had another ride to go down and uh, he damaged his shoulder to a point that he couldn't ride his bike at all. So that's now three bikes into the pickup and uh, two, two other riders uh, into the back of the pickup. And Jim, who was the one the first to go down, he started getting a lot of pain. He's the guy who thought he had just hurt his shoulder. That's right. And he said to me quietly, he said, I think I have actually broken my collarbone. I can feel it moving. Uh, and I said, okay, well, you know, where are you up to with this? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm going to try and ride out. Literally, we ran out of room in a pickup to be able to put his bike in. So we, we talked to the Rawhide uh, staff, explained the situation, and, and they monitored it really well. They were so good. Uh, the first aid was brilliant. They were straight on to the young woman. They, it, it was it was interesting. Um, one of the things that the the fellows a uh, fellow called Owen said is you should always take an umbrella with you when you go adventure riding. And you think to yourself, an umbrella? Why? He said, if you get stopped for whatever reason on a sunny day, having some form of shade is absolutely critical. What he did with that umbrella, it was one of those folding umbrellas, he extended it and he strapped her leg together using that as a splint. Mm, nice so, improvisation. I like that. Yes. So, so you, when you're standing around there in the mud and yes. the, you have all these problems and, and trying to figure things out, what's going through your mind? Uh, good question. Um, one was certainly that the, the – and dare I say it's not just my mind. It was the fact that uh, – 
in the, the phone conversation we had with Jim Hyde and also the night before we left, Jim set the scene for us. He said, this is, going, this is going to be technical. We could have issues. We need everyone to pull together. So he actually got us all understanding the fact that, you know, things, things could happen. If they do, we needed to be tolerant. We needed to be patient. So he had already set that mood with us. So the priority for everyone was to make sure these three riders were in a comfortable, safe situation and that we could get them out. So there was actually talk as to uh, what should we do? Should we go back? Should we go forward? The consensus of opinion through the Rawhide staff was it was going to be better to go forward uh, and get to San Felipe and get medic- seek medical assistance for the three riders. So we, we did exactly that. Uh, as I said, right throughout, there, there was calmness. So it was really great. Uh, and, I, and that really comes from the ride leaders, uh, the people, the staff at Rawhide, their professionalism, the way they ran it. They were calm. They were on top of the situation. At no stage did we feel anxious. We just sat around until everything was loaded up and ready to rock and roll, and then uh, we moved on. The fact that you couldn't make Mike Sky Ranch because it was snowed in had to set off the organizers that there may be trouble with the, with the Compadre Trail. And, and you mentioned that they said that this may be difficult. Was it worse than what they thought? Was the conditions and the mud holes, etc.? I mean, the sand would probably be the same, but were the mud holes and the water portions of it more difficult than what they anticipated? I would say so. Uh, but but as this... Uh, as it was said to us, and, and I tend to agree, is, you know, we're adventure riding. We are not going down an asphalt road where you can have a, a rough idea that this is going to be the same road every time. When we're doing this sort of technical off-road riding, from day to day, it can change. You can have a day where it's nice and sunny, uh, the road is great. You can go there the next day when you've had a downpour throughout the night. There can be erosion ditches. There can be water holes. There can be all sorts of things. So as adventure riders, and I think also getting back to the 19 riders, the paid riders, uh, each one of those people were experienced adventure riders. So our expectations were that things can change, and they can change from hour to hour. So no one was ever worried or concerned about the situation. Uh, and I think because of our experience levels, we were very happy to push on. So what do you have here for injuries? You've got you've got an ankle, the collarbone. What's the other one? Uh, so we had two. We had a collarbone. We had a, a shoulder situation. We didn't know whether that was broken or separated. It turned out that he separated his shoulder and we had an ankle injury. Uh-huh. Uh, yes. So we had two people who could not ride. Uh, at all, uh, and they, their bikes were loaded up, and they were they were put into the trucks. Uh, and we had Jim, who could feel that he had a broken collarbone, was but but was prepared to continue riding. But he only uh, rode for another about ten or fifteen miles, uh, about twenty to twenty five kilometres, because he, the pain started to set in. Uh, that the, the the riding was fairly technical and and fairly physical. Uh, and the pain was setting in. So another 20 kilometres along, we all stopped again. Uh, and at this stage, uh, he was saying, hey, look, I, you know, I can't ride any further. So <laughs> we've now got a situation where we've got three bikes in the back of a pickup. We can't put any more bikes in there. Uh, and we've got a rider who can't ride. So we've got a fourth bike. Uh, and again, this is, a, this is where the Rawhide staff kicked in. So what they did is they got Jim into one of the trucks, which was easier for him to drive the truck than it was for him to ride a motorcycle. And one of the other Rawhide staff uh, donned the, the riding gear and, and rode his bike out. This is happening over what period of time? 
this is happening over a, a nine. It, it took us nine hours to get this this eighty kilometers. So basically, the nine hours was from from your first injury, sort of thing, or not not far off yes. of it, yes. right on until you got out. So, but three riders out of nineteen—that's kind of a high percentage. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, so so I mean, you know, things definitely went wrong. Yes, I so mean, what was it uh, though? Yes. What, what 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 went wrong? So when you look at those those mud holes where people went down, was it? Just one of those things, was it rider air? Was it the stress of having uh, all these people trying to go through an area that's taking much longer than what it, what we were supposed to? What, do you, what did you feel it was? Very good question, Jim. Um, it's okay. It, it certainly wasn't a situation where we were being pushed. Uh, so it wasn't the fact that, that there was anyone who was lacking any ability and, and had to ride above their expectations or their ability uh that that was really neat with the rawhide guys they they kept us fairly close together and we rode at a, at a comfortable safe speed i think where it came unstuck was the fact that um, we had three unique and unusual situations any one of those three could have been a very light get off but none of them was at speed uh could have been a light get off uh it, where the rider picks up the bike and, and nothing's hurt. Uh, to give you an idea, uh, you know, with, with what I've talked about, my riding experience and my riding ability, I still dropped the bike four times throughout that day. So, so it was pretty technical then. It was, it was, yeah, it was very technical. There was no two ways about that. Because you're, you're, uh, you're the type of rider, you're not dropping your bike every time you go out. You, you, no, know, you, you go out no. and you ride and you, when you drop it, you sort of... It, it's a rare thing. It's a rare thing. Exactly yeah. right. So, so yeah, I would I would have said that this was, uh, you know, if, if we were looking at a scale of one to ten, this uh, trail, I would have said it was very much an eight, a seven or an eight, uh, and in some places right up there as a nine. Uh, not impossible, but but it was a tough trail. And as I said, uh, typically I dropped the bike about four times. Uh, four times didn't hurt myself. None of those was at speed. Yeah, a lot of it was, you know, very deep sand, uh, technical stuff where you, you're going through sand in a, in a uh, river bed and there was a, in my case, there was a, a tree root coming out and, and at an angle and I hit that and went down probably about uh, two kilometres, two or three kilometres an hour. Um, other times you're coming out of a mud hole and, and there's a, an erosion uh, ditch uh, coming down from the road, and, and you get your tra- your wheel trapped into that, and you try and come out of that, <laughs> and that drops you on your on your side. <laughs> so, all of those were, were just your typical. I, I believe just just your typical go out there and, and have a fun day on on an adventure bike. Unfortunately, uh, for three of our nineteen, uh, their get offs were such that they experienced injuries. Um, I have to say, just thinking about it right now, Jim. Freak occurrences. Uh, they were they were very very unlucky to have had any sort of injury because none of them was at speed. There was there was no speed involved in that situation and no perceived danger. There was no vehicles coming in the opposite direction. There was no you know cliffs or anything like that. It was just three very unique and unusual situations. I wanted to blame it on the weight of the R twelve hundred, the big tractor, but but one of the riders was on a six hundred, so I can't yeah, do that. <laughs> but so with this, like because there's so many people, when I was saying um, feeling rushed, is because there's a group 
um, the group mentality, I guess I would call it, where when we get together in a group, we tend to uh, ride faster. We feel compelled to keep up with other riders that may or may not be at our same riding skill level. And that's sort of what I was wondering, because I know quite often riders will say, no, no, I'm good because they feel that, you know, it's, I guess it's a bit of pride thing. Males are probably worse than females for it. Uh, I think for the most part where you, you feel compelled to go and you will ride through things sometimes even without, without thinking. I mean, I think there gets to that point where you, um, you know, where it's either choke or panic. Um, when you get into that situation where you'll see riders just try to ride through and you think, well, what were they thinking? I'm just wondering if any of that happened in these mud holes. Uh, another good question. Uh, and I'm just, I'm just trying to think back on that one, Jim. No, I don't think that was the case. Uh, it was interesting speaking to this young woman, uh, you know, wife of, of one of the other riders. Um, we are, I, I asked her, uh, why did she pick that particular route? Uh, typically, I was tending to ride up, up high on the sides. I, I'm a bit lazy. I don't like cleaning my motorcycle. So I like to stay as clean as possible. <laughs> so, so whenever I see a mud hole, I tend to look for the sides. She rode straight through the middle of the mud hole uh, and, and something happened and the bike skewed and went down. So I asked, you know, why, why did you do that? She said, I was following my husband. Mm. So in, in her situation, she was doing exactly that. She, she was, they weren't riding fast. They'd come to the, the, this big swamp area, there's a, a number of big mud holes, and he just, he just literally rode straight through and, and popped out the other side on his 1200. She went to do the same thing, probably accelerated a little bit too quickly, and it spun around and, and dropped her into the mud hole. Uh, so that was, that was the, the young woman. Uh, Jim, uh, we, I, I, wasn't, I was probably about three, two or 300 metres behind Jim when he went down. We came around a corner and there was just a, a very, very long section of very deep, soft sand. Uh, Jim went into that, uh, probably had a little bit too much weight over the front wheel and, you know, the situation with that, Jim. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he just went clunk, went down and, and landed on his shoulder. And, and as I said, at that stage, he said, oh, you know, I, I must have just bruised the shoulder or whatever. And we picked the bike up and, and off he went. Now, I didn't see the, the third accident where the fellow had actually separated his shoulder, but again, I was led to believe it was in deep sand. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd have to say three freak occurrences. No one, no one was pushed for speed. No one was pushed for time because this was very early on in the day. This is probably in the first third of the day. Uh, and one of the big things, we just talked about groups. One of the big things with such a large group was that we did actually did split up into riding abilities, if I can say that. Uh, I was probably in the top five. Uh, we, were, we were riding at, at a, a fairly brisk pace. There was a, a middle group, which was certainly riding at a lot more conservative pace. And then there was probably about uh, two or three riders who were riding at a, at a very comfortable pace. So very early on in that time frame, we had sort of separated ourselves out to uh, a riding dynamic, which we all felt comfortable with. Mm, that's a smart way to do it. And that, and that gets away from that, that thing, like I was talking about, that feeling, the, the compulsion to keep up with riders that you, you wouldn't otherwise be able to keep up with or may not be able to keep up with. Now, that, was that done with the organizers or is, or is that just a thing that you guys ended up doing, just sort of a, a natural occurrence? No, that was done with the organizers. That's what, that was what actually what was discussed uh, early on to say, hey, look, you know, ride in your own pace. Get your, get your ride, buddy. Uh, you know, we've got enough people here that you'll find someone to, to be very comfortable to ride with, uh, which we did very early on. 
Uh, and yeah, uh, it, it seemed to go very well. I, I was very impressed with the way Rawhide controlled such a large group. They really made us feel like a, a team, uh, a very cohesive team. Uh, you know, uh, it was a situation where uh, we, uh, we had roommates to keep the cost down. Uh, I uh, buddied up with a, uh, a wonderful guy called Doug uh, from Chicago, uh, and he was, he was basically riding at the same pace than myself. In fact, he was riding. He was a much better rider than myself. But we all looked after each other. Uh, it was – it was I, – I, I went – to Rawhide to start this as a stranger, meeting a whole bunch of 18 other strangers. I came away with uh, 21, no, 24 uh, now close friends who we communicate on Facebook. Uh, the The feeling of that whole trip was, was brilliant. The dynamic, the chemistry in the trip, the way Rawhide ran that and looked after us and fed us. Uh, I've never eaten so much food in my life. <laughs> uh, very impressive. Very impressive. So as the riders are dropping and the, and the truck is filling up, <laughs> there has to be um, some talk about a medical run, a, a hospital run. Yes, uh, it, it, was, it was said by our uh, lead, Rawhide. He said, yeah, it's probably a good idea none of us crash from now on. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're was, getting filled up here. And, and there's yeah, a point exactly where right. the ambulance is going to have to pull out and go. Yes. Uh, so, you know, he, he said that tongue in cheek, but there, there was a, a hint of uh, seriousness involved that, you know, we, we needed to be extra vig- vigilant on uh, our riding abilities and what we were doing. And, and I would say from then on, uh, our, there was about the top five riders which I was with, we actually did slow our pace down uh, because, again, it was a situation where we probably went into a little bit of conservative mode rather than probably full-on uh, attack mode. Uh, and uh, right throughout, as soon as we got to satellite communication, Rawhide was back in touch with uh, base and explaining to the situation uh, that night we when we were at San Felipe uh, the the three riders uh, which were injured uh, were sent off straight off to a first aid facility it was a, it was a fairly rudimentary simple facility but at least they were they were attended to and they got strapped up which was great and they got some medication to give them some pain relief so that was done and throughout the night rawhide was organizing to get those three riders plus that well actually it turned out to be four because the husband went back with the wife uh, four riders and four bikes back to the border at Takate, at which point the rawhide had sent down uh, a team to be able to take those people from there back into america and uh, seek uh, professional medical assistance and be able to look after their bikes as well so all that was handled throughout that first night and and uh, by the next morning they were all feeling pretty happy with things and and moving off so it was pretty good and after that you didn't lose any more riders no we did not uh not but nor did we do any uh, more technical off-road riding a lot of it was uh, your typical dirt road riding nothing nothing as typical uh, technical or as difficult as we had that on that day too did they scuttle stuff because of this did they change plans? No, the only plan we changed was that Mike Sky Ranch, mm. uh, which was which was already planned. Uh, that that change, everything else was we stayed exactly the same places we stayed at. We went down exactly the same roads. We visited some iconic places, like you've probably heard of Coco's Corner. We visited Coco's Corner and signed his book, and uh, and saw Lake Chapala and and. Uh, went into some stunning uh, local seaside uh, resorts and then got down down to San Ignacio and then they had a day out whale watching, seeing some 
stunning whales in, in the Pacific Coast, which was brilliant. Going back to that section, though, that you had the difficulties in, did it change the way you feel about group travel? Would you travel with a group that size again? And also, if you were going to do something on your own, just a group of buddies going around, would you consider taking a group like that size? Or would you now say, yeah, that might be too much for us? It certainly changed my my understanding and my approach to group travel. No two ways about that. Uh, leading up to this trip, I used to do a lot of uh, solo riding, uh, getting the bike, my bike out and, and uh, heading off down dirt tracks and such like. I then re- I've now realised how potentially serious that could be uh, where if I go down in one of these trails where someone might not come along for a day or two, uh, I could be in a bit of strife. Uh, seeing firsthand this situation and how important it is to have uh, a backup rider or riders has made me appreciate that riding a solo has a, a potential situation which which can get very serious. So, and you and I talked about this uh, when we met up in Vancouver Island, I'm now looking at coming up with some form of EPIRB or spot tracker or uh, inReach because uh, I could see if something happens, I need to be able to get hold of that. The issue with all of that is that if that happens, I need to be conscious. In a lot of cases, you might be unconscious. Riding with a pair, having another rider with you, I believe in some technical situations is is paramount. Uh, My thought now is uh, two is good, four is better. Having a a situation where a rider is injured, you've got one person who can stay with that, but you've also got two people who can ride out just in case one of those people have issues, be it a flat tire, a mechanical issue, or they run into personal difficulties. So two is good, four is brilliant for technical situations. Riding in this group as big as we had, 19, what I was so impressed with was the fact that Rawhide got us all understanding the situation before we even left their base, how we had to handle the situation if something went wrong, the etiquette about riding with each other, uh, giving each other space, showing tolerance, showing patience. So they went to great lengths to have us understanding a riding in a group dynamic. Uh, and I think that's very important. If, if I'm going to be doing something like this uh, again, and I hope I, I will be, I will be making sure that everyone understands what needs to happen if we're riding in groups. Well, you've only been home, what, a week or so, and you're already packing up for another trip. Absolutely. Uh, in Australia, uh, we've had a, a, a situation or, or an event called the, the BMW GS uh, Safari. Uh, it's actually been going for 25 years. It's run by BMW Australia. I think it's actually the longest-running uh, safari that BMW have ever done throughout the world. Uh, this year is the 25th anniversary and it starts in a week and a half's time. So I've come back from having some fantastic experiences to taking on another wonderful channel cha- challenge with this BMW Safari. Uh, it's five days heading up uh, our Great Dividing Range, leaving just north of Sydney in a, a small township called Windsor and ending up uh, up at near Port Macquarie. Uh, and it's around about two to 300 kilometres per day of all dirt which will be great fun. Mm. That certainly sounds like fun. And you're still on your F800, though, but that may change. 
they definitely are still on my F800 and that will change. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill, it was great talking to you again and thank you very much for coming up to Vancouver Island to, to stop and, and say hello. And uh, well, I guess the next one is going to have to be me coming over there. I would like that, Jim. You and Elizabeth coming over here would be great fun. I'll make sure that there's a, a GS1200 waiting for you. Oh, that's, that's more incentive for me. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Take care. That was Bill Cagnacci from Sydney, Australia, as he preps for another motorcycle adventure. Now we're going to take a short break, just a minute or so, but we're going to be right back. And when we come back, stay with us because we've got Jim Hyde from Rawhide Adventures up next. You know, when it comes to riding my bike, I'm kind of practical. I'm fussy too. I like things that work as they're supposed to work. I'm not that fussed about how things look. Uh, I'm more interested in how they work. And it's not very often I get excited about a product that um, I get to try. I got a set of socks sent to me. And honestly, I wasn't excited, not even about opening the box. But when I pulled them out, I saw these were completely different. They're called Pearly's Possum Socks. We had them on the show here to talk about them a while back. They're made of uh, possum wool, or possum fur rather, and merino wool. Two great fabrics. And I already knew about merino wool. Incredible uh, material to keep you warm. It's durable. But this possum hair is even better than the merino wool, which I didn't know. Anyway, woven together, they make amazing socks. I've been riding them all winter long. If you ride in any cold weather, you will love Pearly's possum socks. And I can say that with absolute conviction from someone who is in love with the socks. They are the official sock of Adventure Rider Radio. Possum Socks. They're premium socks. Anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Again, Socks.com. And of course, that link, it's in the show notes. The other day I had somebody um, looking at the IMS pegs on my bike, asking me about them, my experience with them. And it reminded me of the first day I put them on. When I mounted them on the bike... I stood up on the bike going out the driveway and it was immediately apparent, I mean immediately apparent, that these pegs were going to improve my riding and they have ever since. Not to mention that I beat them to death, don't tell them this, but I beat them to death by, you know, them bashing rocks and being dropped on. The the peg's always the one that takes the abuse. They just keep working. I don't have to worry about them. I don't even think about them. You know, I just, I depend on these things. IMS has been around since 1976. It's always been owned and operated by off-road racers and enthusiasts. That's over 40 years. That's a company with a deep pedigree that you can count on. Their pegs are made with CAST-certified 17-4 stainless steel, a certified heat-treating process. They're built in the USA, and they have a lifetime warranty. I can't imagine why you'd look anywhere else. www.imsproducts.com And anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com Adventures is a well-known name in the adventure motorcycle industry. They've been training adventure riders for 15 years. And Rawhide is the only company that's both sponsored and sanctioned by BMW Motorcycles, which has been pushing hard in this segment and doing well for it. 
The man behind the name is Jim Hyde. Jim is the owner of Rawhide Adventures and the driving force for their four training facilities that they have in the United States. What? Where are you exactly? Uh, I am. Well, our our facility is about oh, I don't know, forty miles north of the general LA area. Uh, we're up in the mountains, just off Interstate Five. So this is the main one. This is your main location. Yeah, this is our biggest our biggest facility. We've got twenty five hundred acres here that is a playground for adventure riders. Twenty five hundred acres. That's just like I mean, it's hard to even wrap your head around. Well, yeah, you know, it's an old family property, and, and you know, I just fell into this into this business, and you know, uh, I'd rather be lucky than <laughs> than smart any day, you know. <laughs> Um, so, uh, my, my parents bought this place just after world war two and, um, you know, I got it the old fashioned way through inheritance. But now you've got, um, you've got one in Colorado and you got one in the Mojave desert, I think. We have two in the Mojave desert and one in Colorado. Yes. Uh, we just, we doubled, we doubled the, the place in Colorado last year. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of proud to say, I, I think I'm the only guy that's out there actually buying properties and developing them for this community. Uh, we're, we're just aggressively expanding and, and trying to provide fun places that add value to the community. Well, I know you just got back from a trip. So basically, I guess you sort of set your bags down and picked up the phone to <laughs> talk to me. Yeah, 24 hours ago, um, we just finished um, a fabulous tour of Patagonia in South America that started in Mendoza, Argentina, and wrapped up uh, at what's known as the end of the world in Ushuaia, Argentina. So it was a wonderful trip. Hey, Rawhide, you know, the foundation is in instructional, teaching people how to ride adventure bikes. Um, How'd you get into doing tours? Well, it's a natural evolution, if you really think about it. You know, we've been running training classes for years, but if you really think about the logic of it, when people first meet us, they're expressing their interest in this field by coming for training. And if they have a good time in their training program, there's uh, an element of trust that comes with that and a natural extension of what to do after you've learned how to ride is go travel. And so it, it makes really good logical sense for us to be offering a, a range of tour products that help people expand their horizons. Mm, it makes good business sense, but it also makes sort of um, a bit of a family out of it, doesn't it? Because I, I know you, you get a lot of, you get tons of repeat business. Your, your customers who come out, they get trained, and then they come out and they sort of hang out with you. Well, they do. We have uh, about a 70, 70% return rate wow. for what we do um, for various things, you know, so... Um, so yeah, and it's an amazing family. The, the, in all the years we've been doing this now, fifteen plus years, um, we've only met two or three people that are persona non grata at this point. It's just really, really a wonderful bunch of people. Yeah, I think the motorcycle community in general, in particular, uh, people interested in adventure travel with motorcycles, it's a really welcoming, you know, sort of warm community. I think we see that all over the place. But um, as I told you, we, we just had Bill Cagnacci on, and he took a trip uh, with you um, in February, March, the end of February, 1st of March, the big bike in Baja trip. Bill had a great time yep. on the trip. 
And one of the things uh, he told me that he learned or sort of made him rethink things on this trip was his own ideas of heading off alone for an adventure. Because we heard that things, you know, that some people got injured on the trip. It just made him sort of rethink about how he would handle a situation, which makes us all think how all of us handle situations when we're on trips, in particular when you talk about unorganized group travel, which happens a lot. And that could just be you getting together with your buddies and heading off. And And he sort of went on about how, sure. how well Rawhide handled it, how the, well the guides were trained, how well the system was set up, etc. So I wanted to get you on, since you seem to have the whole thing dialed, and obviously after this long doing it, taking out as many people as you have, I wanted to get an idea from you. When you're planning a guided adventure, what's sort of the top things on the list that you think of to deal with? (laughs) It's a great question, and it it begins with the following. The the most important thing you can do, and especially when in my world, you know, I'm charging people money to join us to go do something. Uh, So it's important for me to set their expectation of what is potentially possible. All right. I think that um, the thing that gets people derailed the most is when completely unexpected things happen and they're just not mentally prepared. So we begin all of our, especially our international trips, we begin with a conference call where there's plenty of time for questions and answers, but also for us to give people plenty of advance notice uh, of what to think about, what to prepare for, how we view things and how we run the trip. Um, And I always tell people, listen, you know, in the case of Mexico, where Bill just came back from, um, it's a third world country. Okay. Um, Even though it's our neighbor, the, uh, the support systems that we come to take for granted here in the U S do not exist there. So, you know, there are ambulances, but none of them have much in the way of equipment. They're just a vehicle to haul you from point A to point B many times. So um, we, we try to prepare ourselves for the unexpected, but we also mentally try to help people wrap their head around the fact that things can go wrong in places like that. And if they do, they don't have the same resources available. So that's step one. Step two. So, is, hang on. Let me let me just ask about step one here first. Though conference call. Why a conference call? Why everybody at once? Well, there's two reasons. And again, this is this comes just from uh, from experience. You know, um, if we have them all on a call and we explain what's going to happen and how things work, it's really hard for them to say, "I didn't know that." Um, we also provide folks with a very thorough document that tells them all the requirements that they need um, and and really covers the same thing we talk about in the phone call, but I've also learned, especially in the world of men, and that's a poke at guys because girls always read the supporting documents that are sent and men usually go, yeah, 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 I'm going to print it. I'm going to leave it on my desk. I'm going to read it before the trip for sure. It's kind of like instructions. You know, you read the instructions afterwards, you've screwed it up and you can't get it together. You go back to see where where you went wrong. Exactly. And so guys just, I swear, half of them don't read it. I'll send it to them, but they go, oh, no, I didn't read that. I don't have time. So if I get them on a conference call, they can't look me in the eye and say, oh, gee, I didn't know that. So that, that's just evolved over the years. We used to depend on documentation that we would send by email. And so many times I'd say, well, we, 
we we put it in the document, didn't you read it? And guys go, well, no, I didn't. So we've we've evolved to conference calls followed up with documentation. Okay, so you you were about to go on to number two. What's number two? Well, so we set the customer expectation, and then we we have a lot of internal checks and balances. You know, we, we, we have a team meeting and we double check our packing list. Do we have our first aid kits? Do we have satellite phone? Do we have all the details that we know we need? Um, and then based on the number of customers that may be traveling with us and what we know about those people, then we staff accordingly. So the, uh, the trip to Mexico that Bill was on, we had two support trucks uh, because we had a pretty good sized group and uh, we had three people on the trail to kind of keep an eye on the group. And uh, it turned out that having those, that extra support truck was real helpful. <laughs> Simple as that. How do you vet the rider's skill level? How do you, how do you set things up? Like, in other words, every trip is going to have um, a varying degree of rider skill. I would think every trip you would set up, anyone would set up. How do you figure out where people are? Well, for the most part... And again, since we have a 70% return rate, we know that most of our customers that sign up for our tours have been through our training program. So we know what their baseline is. But the challenge is, and again, this is just real life. Um, some folks will come here, they'll take the class, they feel good about what they learned, and then they go home and they don't ride for six months. And we honestly but teasingly tell them when they graduate from class, folks, these are perishable skills. You got to practice. You need to get some miles under your belt uh, uh, and begin to solidify this muscle memory stuff that we talk about, or you're just going to feel clumsy when you get back on the bike again. And the one thing we can't do is, you know, guarantee that people are going to go practice. So this trip to Mexico had some challenges because we did have a couple of riders that hadn't been getting much practice under their belts. But usually what happens in the group setting is that those riders who are less comfortable tend to migrate to the back of the pack so that they don't impede the faster riders. And typically then the group spreads out as did happen on this trip. Um, and, and it just, it's self-managing. Uh, but as you mentioned, there were some injuries and those became challenges, but we dealt with it and moved on. What do you think the, um, or what is the biggest challenge to dealing with a group? And I don't, I don't even mean organize any sort of group travel, um, when you're riding motorcycles. Oh, the biggest challenge, well, it, it's just, it's hurting cats. Okay. That's really the, the, the challenge because in a, um, a commercial tour setting, you typically have people that don't know one another. They've never ridden together. They don't know each other's behaviors on the trail. So because of that, there's usually a little group chaos as they find their place in the pack. And um, I think that it's just managing, managing the herd is really the biggest challenge. Um, and there's no real science to it. Um, it, uh, I'd have to say it's both an art and, um, it sorts itself out. Usually we run a lot of, of, uh, week plus tours. So to, uh, eight to 12 days. 
And usually in the first two days, people are finding their place in the pack and they're jockeying back and forth and getting used to the group scene. And uh, by the third day, they've settled in and then things usually smooth out. What I'd like to, to do here, Jim, is get some tips from you, from your experience, the things that you've learned over the years for group travel. For those that might be heading out with their, their buddy on the weekend or a few buddies or, or maybe a, a semi-organized or even an organized trip, some tips on group travel. Can you give us some? Um, yeah, sure. Um, for, for what it's worth, um, a, surely a conference call or get together for dinner and uh, uh, put your itinerary together, um, step one, okay. Uh, step two, don't everybody carry the same stuff. Um, everybody's got a tool roll that they carry typically, and you know most of us have our air compressor and our tire repair kits and all the rest of that, and you, if you're riding a group, you don't all need that. So share the load. You know, one guy's got the compressor or, or maybe two, and couple of guys have tire kits, but the rest of them don't. And there's only a couple of tool rolls amongst the group. And uh, that's one. Uh, two, um, make certain that uh, you've got communication protocols set up. So whether or one guy gets separated or lost, how, how does he find the pack? Um, whether it's cell, whether it's satellite, whether it's having a spot or an in-reach device, make certain that every member of the group can communicate. Uh, for an example, what we do, um, every time we take a significant tour group, we don't usually do this on our two-day rides, but if we're going out for a week or more, everyone joins a WhatsApp group. Um, are you familiar with WhatsApp? Yeah, yep. Okay, so we form a WhatsApp group, and everybody's phone numbers are in there, and we initiate the group. We make certain that everybody's in it because then – Assuming we have cell service, which you start, you do almost everywhere these days, three or four times a day, you'll have cell service, especially in cities at night where you're getting a hotel or whatever. Somebody gets lost, you can share your location through WhatsApp. You can communicate easily back and forth. Um, we did that in Patagonia, the trip that I just returned from. It worked brilliantly. It's so easy to share information about where we're going to have dinner, where's the hotel, uh, what time are we leaving tomorrow? stuff like that. So clear communications among the group is the second most important thing. Um, so, uh, you know, meet, put your itinerary together. Don't all carry the same stuff. Make certain you have communication tools uh, ironed out and that everybody knows how to use them. And then beyond that, ride within your limits. Um, so that's, that's the, that's one of the big problems that we face. Um, and that any group faces, uh, especially among men. Guys, you know, there's this uh, uh, alpha male thing that an awful lot of riders display. They, that, you know, they're riding in a group. They want to show their prowess or whatever. They're pushing their limits and they end up getting hurt, which is foolish. Um, our policy uh, commercially is that we try to help everybody visualize what they could do on their very best day. And we call that 100% of their riding ability. And then we say, folks, you're here to have fun. Don't ride above 70% of your ability level. That gives you margin for error, gives you time to think, 
and it's also you're, you're running at a pace where you can actually enjoy what you're doing. Because if you're riding really close to your thresholds of skill, you have to pay attention to what you're doing and you're not seeing what's around you. And that's the point of what we do is enjoy the beauty of nature. And uh, so I guess uh, those are my tips for what they're worth. How I think that's that's really important what you just said about the the percentage of uh, that you're pushing it. I think that's great, and I guess for that you sort of let the group break up. You were you're saying that that's what they do anyway. You sort of let the group separate a little bit into the riders who are taking their time a little bit more and the riders who can ride faster up front. Right. We always have two or three members of our team on the trail. One is in sweet position, and he never passes a rider. Somebody stops to take a picture. He stops and waits, and ushers them ahead of him. Um, and then our lead rider, usually uh, our protocol is that we keep three riders in our mirror at all times. Um, and then we run at a pace that our lead rider is comfortable with. And as long as he's got three guys behind him, that creates the zone within which people can fall to wherever they're comfortable in the pack. The timid, the timid slow riders usually are back there with the sweeper. Um, and the more aggressive guys are riding up front with the trip leader, and it all works out. Jim, I'm going to ask you kind of a loaded question here, really, um, but I, I trust you're going to answer this, you know, right from the heart. How much training do you think people should take? Like how often? How, how much training would they need? Would, would once a year be enough? Should people be pushing it all the time to train? Is training something you should do on a daily basis? How do you feel about it? I said loaded question because anybody who's listening is going to go, well, you're, you're talking to a guy who sells training courses for a yeah. living. Like, come on, Jim. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, it is, that's a fair question. Um, well, I guess what I, uh, I could give you just the actuarials, you know, um, for level one training, you know, we, we have 100% of our customer base takes our level one training. Okay. Level two, um, I get about 60% of our customers come back to take our level three, or sorry, level two. Um, I get 20% of folks coming back for level three. I get a fairly low number of folks who come back to take either level one or level two a second time. Um, I don't think that one needs to take refresher adventure rider training classes every year uh, if you ride enough to practice your skills. Um, I've had a couple guys who said to me, yeah, you know, I bought a DS. I come and took your class. I didn't ride for two and a half years. So I came back to take it a second time. I don't think that's a good idea um, because they're not getting enough seat time to stay to keep their skills sharp. Um, but you know, we've toyed with the idea of just offering refresher classes, but we're so darn busy just doing our regular day-to-day -day stuff. We, we, we don't. Um, but once a year, some kind of a refresher or just a weekend where you say to yourself, I'm going to go practice is enough for most people. Most guys, I think I, I'll, I'm going to generalize really widely here, but I think uh, most folks, adventure riding is, is a fun part of their life. It is not something that they do all the time. Um, it's vacation time. It's two or three trips a year. Um, I think that's the average Joe. 
And so they could certainly stand to have a practice weekend somewhere in there to just focus on basics and practice. But I don't know. That was a very random and rambling answer. Um, I hope it gives you what you're looking for. Well, well, it, it, the other thing that came to mind as you're saying that is I'm thinking if you took a level one course, should you always try to take a level two? Like, I guess what I'm saying is if you're riding at, say, a, a basic level, should you always try to advance your skills or can you just keep riding at your level one if that's what you do and it suits your riding? You know, I think that, that's a good answer. It, it, we, we couch everything with folks is what are your goals and what is it that you want to do? Are you... Are you just a, a dude who wants to go ride the local forest service roads and, and the dirt roads of, of state parks and things like that and just feel comfortable? Um, if that's the case, you're level one, that's all you need. That's, so that's what level one training is geared for. Uh, however, if you're a little more of an adventurous spirit and you really want to, you want to go explore the old mines that are up in the high country and, or you want to travel internationally and you're going to South America or Mongolia or something, then you really should have a little more advanced training because you have absolutely no idea what you're going to get into out there. So um, for someone who's going to do that, I'd say they should take our level two and our level three class because our level three program covers a lot more than just riding skills. It's everything from trail side maintenance to navigation to self first aid. If you get hurt out there, um, and a bunch of other stuff that is not specific to being on the bike, but is very much a part of what adventure touring is all about. Jim, thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on the show. I know you're busy and I, and I appreciate you taking the time out to talk to me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Really good to talk to you again. It's been a while. So thanks for uh, bringing me on. That was Jim Hyde from his training facility in California from Rawhide Adventures. You can find out more about Rawhide at rawhide-offroad.com. And of course, that link will be in the show notes. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, and you do us a great favor if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of adventure rider radio we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks of course to our producer and you i forgot my producer's name the producer elizabeth martin and you the listener thank you very much i think i'm getting a little ahead of myself there anyway time to get out there and ride your bike if you can my name is jim martin thanks for listening see you next week to be Willyfeer. I'm Michas Willyfeer. We're from Piggy Piggy Overland. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 